Thanks for tuning in to the Falcon Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jansen, mild-mannered manager of the Falcon Theatre in Tisdale, Saskatchewan. Together with my son, Noah Jansen, the self-professed movie snob, we're going to enlighten and entertain you with our immense movie knowledge. So sit back and relax. But if you're currently driving a vehicle, don't relax too much. But enjoy this episode of the Falcon Theatre Podcast. All right. Hey, welcome, everyone. Welcome back to the Falcon Theater Podcast. Uh, our, what, fourth podcast now? I this, yeah, I think this is episode four already. Oh, man. This time flies. Three, 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 three more episodes than I thought we'd ever really get to. So, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Eh? So, uh, today on uh, the Falcon Theater Podcast, in case you want to hear what we're going to be talking about and then decide. No, I don't want to hear about any of this, so I'm just going to stop it now. Uh, well, okay, talk- let's, not, let's not let them know. Let's not let them know. Then no. just keep <laughs> we'll just we'll just hide it, right? No, they want to know. People want to know what's going on. So uh, we're going to talk about Quentin Tarantino. We got a little bit of Star Trek news, and we're going to talk some Carl Weathers, and uh, then of course Noah knows and our miscellaneous questions at the end of the episode. So. Uh, before we get started too much, I want to talk about a little bit about what's happening at the Falcon Theater this week, because there's a big weekend coming up this weekend. Uh, February 9th to the 11th, we have the movie coming, Anyone But You, which is a rom-com movie. Um, but I want to talk specifically about the, the Saturday night, February 10th. We have a special date night for Valentine's Day. We've teamed up with the Tisdale Canats. And uh, so for $20, you get into the movie, you get uh, five raffle tickets, there will be other prizes given out during the movie, and the doors open at 7 o'clock, and the movie's going to start at 8.30. And this event only is licensed, which means you have to be 19 or over to get into this movie. So I uh, hope to every- see everybody there. We're raising money for Telemiracle, which is coming up here at the end of the month. Uh, Also, February 16th to the 18th, we're going to be showing The Iron Claw, and the weekend after that, we're going to show the movie Argyle, which isn't getting great reviews from the movie (laughs) critics, but uh, I'm still holding out hope that the people are going to love it. Um, And then I'm working on my March lineup right now, so anyway, that's what's going on at the Falcon Theatre this week. That sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited for this weekend. Yeah, it'll be really cool to get to see how Hidari is going to have like, uh, like you know, bartenders like, mix and drinks, or is it just going to be kind of like, what do you, what do you want? Here you go, crack it open. Yeah, we're going to have uh, so you buy your drink tickets at a separate table, and then we're going to have the drinks like in the pop machine, and you can come up there with your drink ticket and get your drinks from there. Not sure. The Canats are actually taking care of the drink portion of the event, so. I'm not exactly sure how, what all they're going to have there, but we'll we'll find out. It's it is going to be licensed though. First time we've done a licensed event since I've taken over, and hopefully not the last. Yes, exactly. I hope it goes over really well, and we can do many more in the future. Are you going to have uh, bouncers and security outside uh, in case it gets rowdy and th- throw people out? Or uh, have you seen your mother? She's she's the bouncer. She'll throw. Oh, she's out. she's pretty terrifying. Trust me. I've yeah. I've seen I've seen I've seen horrors beyond human comprehension. When it, when her mouth opens and no words come out, then yeah. you know you've really screwed up, right? 
and breaks the sound barrier. (laughs) Okay, so let's move on. Um, I was reading that Quentin Tarantino is making his final movie. It's his 10th or 11th, depending on how you count the Kill Bill movies. Uh, It's going to be called The Movie Critic. And uh, so this is going to be his final movie, according to him. Now, I was doing a little reading, and I thought this was interesting. A little while ago, he was quoted by uh, in Playboy magazine, actually, uh, saying the following. Directors don't get better as they get older. Usually the worst films in their filmography are those last four at the end. I'm all about my filmography, and one bad film fucks up three good ones. I don't want that bad, out-of-touch comedy in my filmography. The movie that makes people think, oh man, he still thinks it's 20 years ago. When a director gets out of date, it's not pretty. So that's what uh, that's what Quentin Tarantino said. Well, there you go. I mean, I it, it's a thing that's like, you know, as much as it makes me sad that that would be his last. I mean, if he, you know, sticks the landing with it, I mean, it's a good way to you know, end your career on a, on a high point. And, you know, again, too, the guy loves, he loves film and he loves like the, just the attention to detail and the art behind all of it. And I doubt this will be the last time he ever works on something in the film world, but probably like the last time he has such a heavy hands on, uh, you know. Yeah. That it'll be considered to be his film. Yeah, exactly, you know, but, um, no, I mean, like, I mean, Tarantino, I would, I would definitely put him in my top five directors of all time, you know, he's just, he's got, he's a, he's a bit of an odd duck, and he's got just a different way of thinking about things and seeing the world, and, you know, anytime you go in and watch one of his movies, it's always such a unique experience, and you can, you know, like other directors, like, say, like, Wes Anderson, or, you know, Martin Scorsese, you can tell it's a Tarantino movie, but it still feels like its own thing and not just in the same, oh, okay, it's another one of his, you know? Yeah, no, he, he absolutely has a way of reinventing how he does things. No, 100%. Yeah, as, as you know, Pulp Fiction is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, that, that's a movie I can watch over and over. And, and it's so quotable. And even uh, a lot of people don't know this. Uh, the tattoo that I have on my leg comes directly from one of my favorite quotes from Pulp Fiction. Um, I'm not going to say it on on here, but uh, that that movie means so much to me. That that's in my opinion, that is one of the greatest films that's ever been produced. I, I do I do love how you won't say the line, but you, you did uh, drop the f bomb when you were quoting uh, Tarantino oh, in the last year. <laughs> yeah, but I was I was but I was quoting him, so it's oh, okay then, well, right? Would, 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 would this still not be quoting him because it was his script? Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess. Uh, you're okay. You're right. You got me. The my my favorite line in Pulp Fiction is when uh, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, when Samuel L. Jackson and uh, uh, John Travolta are cleaning up the dead pieces of the guy they shot in the back of the car. Oh man, I shot Marvin in the face. <laughs> and and John Travolta calls says he's a race car in the red. And uh, Samuel Jackson is just angry, and he's like, "Your race car in the red? Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying, motherfucker, motherfucker." And I just, when I first heard that line, I literally almost peed my pants laughing. It was just the way it was delivered. It was just the best line ever. And so, 
the the tattoo I have on my leg of a mushroom cloud, uh, it has other meanings to me, but one of the main meanings is the fact that it comes from Pulp Fiction. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, I was looking through the list of his movies, actually, and uh, there's quite a few I haven't seen. I haven't seen Four Rooms. I haven't seen Jackie Brown. Um, I, I've seen, of course, his later stuff. Um, I, I actually have only seen the first half of Reservoir Dogs. I have to, I got interrupted the one time I was watching it and I never got back to finish watching it. So I still oh, need really? to do that. I, I, I know there's, I know there's a, like the one thing is everybody has a different, uh, like a different Tarantino film. That's like their favorite. Like some, some people love, you know, love Kill Bill you know, and some, and they like, oh, they, they might not be super big into Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, and then some are super big into Pulp Fiction and weren't super big into Hateful Eight, and, you know, it, 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 he has such a wide range that, like, different people will take away different things from his movies. I'll, I'll be honest, I turned Kill Bill off. I couldn't stand it. And and I love oh, really? his really? movies. Like, I love all the other ones I've seen, but I just, I could not get into Kill Bill. Didn't like it. Maybe I should go back. It's been a long time. I sh- and I never watched number two, but maybe I should go back and give it another chance just because uh, it's been a while and my my tastes have changed. No, hundred percent. I mean, I, as as much as I as much as I absolutely love Pulp Fiction, um, I think my personal favorite's got to be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is the last one that came out. Oh, really? Yeah, I. That's one that I like. I can I can go back to on any day and just kind of just put that on. Uh, so much just care and detail went into like every scene in that movie, like just showing Los Angeles in in the sixties and everything like that. And you can just tell like, you know, this is as much as it goes down to like the, when, um, Oh, what's his name? When Brad Pitt's character is in his trailer and he's like making craft dinner, like the, the accuracy to like the box of like the Mac and cheese was accurate to like that year. And you can just tell like every little thing was put together just so meticulously in that movie. And, and I mean, personally, I just, I love the alter, like I'm a big true crime fan. So like the, the alternate history of, you know, the Manson family, it, it kind of, you watch the movie and it's, it's a very dialogue heavy movie. It doesn't have those heavy action set pieces that, you know, you're used to in a lot of previous Tarantino movie and, you know, yeah, you're but watching like it. And, but he's known for like his dialogue is the greatest. Well, that's exactly it. Like that, he he's so he just writes it so intelligently and just so it's like it's natural, but it's also so I don't even call it like not unnatural, but just like unique. Um, and then just that final scene there when the uh, when the Manson family breaks into you know instead of Sharon Tate's house. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! It came out five six years ago. If you haven't seen it yet. But uh, no, I mean, I I absolutely love that. He has just a way of writing writing characters to just be these like a story in of them themselves. I I agree. I really liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and and my comment after was the reason I loved it was because of the characters. It, it the story is whatever. There's really not much of a story to it, and it, and it goes to show that I'm a character driven. Uh, movie watcher like I, I love to I want to know about the characters I want to feel for the characters the story itself is secondary to character in my in my life anyway oh 100% um, 
surprisingly enough, I, I was surprised by this anyway. Your grandmother, Rosalie, liked Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I was, yeah. I, yeah, that surprised me when I heard it. I was like, I didn't think that that would be a movie that would appeal to her. But I remember afterwards her telling me that she, she enjoyed it. But then she also grew up in that time frame, right? So, and like you said, yeah. The, the attention the nostalgia. Was, was so good that I guess maybe she felt some nostalgia for that time frame, perhaps? No, 100%. Eh? Um, anyway, I was going to talk about this new movie that he's working on, because I think it... What I read about it sounds really interesting. Um, is is that this new movie? It's called The Critic, and it, it's based on a real guy. And is this uh, a live action? Is this like a live action retelling of that cartoon from the nineties with uh, John Lovitz? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't remember. Oh, the oh, the the TV show or the little show, the critic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that was a great little show. I completely forgot yeah. about if, that. If John Lovitz doesn't have like a cameo in this uh, movie, I'm going to be a little disappointed. Yeah, we might have to throw our drinks at the screen and walk out if he doesn't. Holy man! Right. Like, that I we, really we, could also, we could also we could also just throw our drinks at John Lovitz anyway too. There's that. <laughs> um. Anyway, so so uh, what Tarantino has said, or what they know about this movie, The Critic, um, The Critic was a guy that he knew, a, a real guy, who wrote about mainstream movies uh, as a second-string critic. And uh, Tarantino thought he was a very good critic. He was cynical as hell. And apparently he died in his 30s, and it wasn't clear clear for a while why he had died but uh, Tarantino did some research and found out that it was complications due to alcoholism was why he died so that's well, this is going to be a very uh, very happy movie he's gonna make, right? <laughs> well I'm sure yeah you know all of his movies are super happy um, and and so because of the age of the critic they don't think that Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio are going to be cast as the lead actor but the Hollywood rumor mill is churning out reports that Pitt might actually be the movie critic after all. So who knows? I guess we'll find out. I right. mean, Brad, Brad Pitt's, uh, he, he's rich enough that, the, you know, he looks young for his age. He could easily pull off like a late 30s if, with, you know, with the right makeup and everything. Yeah, perhaps. He's no Tom Cruise, but uh, you know. Right. Well, Brad Pitt's 60 years old, actually. What? No, I just looked it up. He December eighteenth, nineteen sixty three. He is sixty years old. I hope I can get as young looking as he is when he when I'm sixty. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? Am I gonna de age like like that? Uh, no, nah, we'll just, just we'll, he's just a charm. We'll do a deep fake of your face. <laughs> <laughs> deep fake my entire life with uh, younger me. No, I don't. I I wear my age proudly, and that's the way it should be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, um, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. Like, especially if I mean, something called the critic. I'm gonna assume it's gonna be a very more character-driven dialogue, heavy, like not a an action set set piece like uh, some of his you know previous movies. So, um, yeah, no, I'll be curious to see as to what uh, what he'll put together. Yeah, well, we know that it'll have good. Uh, it'll have good actors, our good character, and. And really, that's that's all I want, right? That's I mean, that's all we really need. <laughs> What's that? I said that's all we really need. Really, is just some uh, Tarantino character development, and then uh, I'm pretty much sold. 
when I when I was reading about like the the critic, like who this guy was that Tarantino's writing about, it made me think just for a minute of uh have you watched the TV show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? No, and, I haven't. Oh, okay. Well, this won't mean much to you, but all of our listeners out there, both listeners, um the on the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, there's a the character Lenny Bruce, who was an actual comedian. But the way he's portrayed in Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, he's my favorite character in that TV show. And 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 the way that this was explained about the critic that Tarantino was writing this about made me think of the Lenny Bruce character from Marvelous. Well, Mrs. and he was Lenny Bruce. I don't believe was very old too when he died. And I, if I, if yeah. I, if I think back, I believe he died due to alcoholism. It, well, he was an alcoholic, apparently, according to the history of, of it. But yeah, I don't know. I, excuse me. I, I thought that, that's what I thought anyway. I thought of Lenny Bruce when I when I read that, and I thought I really enjoyed that character. So, time to move on. Are we sure. done with Tarantino? I think so. Yeah, I think that's most what we had to say about that weird little guy. Okay, so next, uh, I saw some Star Trek news that I oh. didn't realize that they were making a new Star Trek movie. Uh, this it just I'll, started. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, I'll be honest. I didn't. I don't think I even saw the the last of the JJ Abrams. Is this going to be in that same universe, or are they doing another? Is it like kind of a new story altogether? Well, I don't like. I mean, it's all in the Star Trek universe. I uh, except for seasons one, two of Picard. I think the rest of it is all in the universe. Uh, but this one um, is 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 a takeoff from the Discovery TV show. So oh, okay. In the Star Trek Discovery, I know you're not really a Trekkie, but I've no, I'm know, not. You know I am, and um, in the in the Star Trek Discovery TV show, which I did not appreciate, I I liked the first season, and well, I liked the second season. I didn't even like the first. I liked the second season, and then it just went off the rails and got stupid. And but there there was one character that was quite interesting in it. Uh, Michelle Yeoh plays um oh, she plays a couple different characters but she belongs to what's called section 31 which is like this super secret uh, organization within star trek and so they're making so they're kind, of, kind of like the, the illuminati of star trek kind of kind of yeah the, the so section 31 actually originated in star trek deep space nine season six and where it comes from, it gets its name from Article 14, Section 31 of the Starfleet Charter. Here I sound all smart and trekky, but I just looked this up. Um, in, in the Starfleet Charter, makes allowances for extraordinary measures to be taken during times of extreme threat. Now, this came to the forefront in Star Trek Discovery. They kind of brought it back. And Discovery is 100 years before Deep Space Nine. And by the time of Deep Space Nine, Section 31's kind of a myth. So we'll I guess we'll see maybe what happens with this Section 31. But I'm I'm kind of intrigued by it. I mean, Michelle Yeoh is a great actress. And the idea of kind of this this secretive spy agency within Star Trek, I, I don't know. I I'm kind of intrigued by the idea. So it, it's gonna be kind of like how the original Star Trek movies were you know, a, a film adaptation of a TV show. Is this going to be kind of like a film adaptation of like the Discovery TV show then? No, I don't think it's, I don't think that it's more of a, 
like Fraser was to Cheers. Like it's a oh okay. It, they're taking a character from that TV show and then they're making a completely separate story about her. Um. Okay, that that'll be that'll be really interesting. Well, I hope so. I'm I I always like you always say about you know Star Wars, good or bad. It just love having more Star Wars. Well, I I love having more Star Trek, um, good or bad. But I'll be honest, when it's bad, I don't I I quit. I don't I don't watch it just because it's Star Trek. If I if I'm watching it and it's bad, I'll just continue on. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, I've, I've never been. I've never been the the big Star Trek guy in in the family. I, no. I stuck with the wars. Your mother and I were big uh, Next Generation, and so you know we still are. But I I was a little too uh, I think a little bit too young to be able to like Star Trek is a little bit more of a mature kind of you know less shiny than Star Wars for a little kid. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to more other news. Um, you mentioned about talking about a uh, fellow by the name of Mr. Carl Weathers. Yeah, I was kind of, I was surprised uh, and saddened to hear about his, uh, his passing. Um, I'm not exactly too sure exactly how he, how he passed away, but um, I mean, he was only 76 years old. So not, uh, not very, very old, but you no, know, no, I thought it'd be, yeah. To me, that seems really young now. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, Hey, There was a time where that was like, whoa, that's old. But now at 76, that's that's a young man. No, 100%. Yeah, no, I thought it might be, it might be kind of nice to, you know, we can look back a little bit on his career. You know, he's had quite the kind of, I, I wouldn't say ups and downs. He's never, I don't think, been like, you know, to the, the top, top down. But he's been in some pretty big, big movies. And he's been a big name in Hollywood since, you know, the 70s and 80s. That's true. Yeah. It says here he died peacefully in his sleep on Thursday, February 1st, not like the people screaming in his car. No, that, I added that part on the end. <laughs> he died peacefully in his sleep, so he must have been ill, maybe must, cancer. Yeah. I, I don't know. Probably, I don't know. probably cancer. Yeah, uh, darn big C. Takes too many when they're young. Okay, no kidding, so, eh? so yeah, you're right, though. He, um, he I, I looked up his his credits and man, like he was back in the early seventies. He was starring on TV shows like six million dollar man, Starsky and a hunch, Barnaby Jones, some of my favorite TV shows. And then uh, moving into the eighties there. I mean, most famously is, uh, you know, he's in predator movies. Uh, I guess there's more seventies, but uh, Apollo Creed, I think that's what he's probably most known for in his, uh, his career uh, for that role. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Apollo. Now, the, now the the one question is, uh, since he passed away, have have we seen Dolph Lundgren? Do we know where he was at the time of Carl Weathers' death? <laughs> Why do you ask? Why do you ask? I, well, I'm I'm just curious. Uh, you know, sometimes history tends to repeat itself, so I was hoping maybe you know <laughs> something something bad didn't happen along the way. He didn't die in a boxing ring in in. You know, from a did it say that he said he said he died peacefully in his sleep? Maybe he was knocked out and peacefully passed away. <laughs> he, he <had laughs> one last fight against Dolph, and yeah. uh, Dolph hit him too hard, and he fell asleep and died. I, that, yeah. I like that story. I think that should be the the 
media should release that as how he actually died. He got punched by Dolph Lundgren. Dolph Lundgren's just like, what the hell? I didn't do anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, one one interesting thing I when I was looking up his his movies and his filmography is uh, he was in a bunch of TV shows in the 70s. And then from 1978 to 2000, he did no TV at all. Like that he was trying to break into the movie world, maybe. Well, he had a, like the, you know, couple of the middle Rockies and Predator, of course, was there and Happy Gilmore. And uh, of course, the the one that your mother was named after Action Jackson. Did you know that was your mother? Did you know that was I, your mother's uh, nickname? I I did not know that was her nickname. Yeah, in high school, she it was actually Pat Allen that named her that, but uh, she was called Action Jackson uh, in in high school. Yeah. Oh, that's that's funny. I, uh, you, you, I, have to, uh, you have to ask her about why that name. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll bring it. I'll bring it up. Yeah, definitely. I don't want to get in. I don't know. I didn't know her then, so I can't say why you know they picked that name for her but uh, i know that was she was named after carl weathers for a while yeah well, there you go well, that's a pretty big honor and then she did about he did a bunch of movies as well in the set like the the 80s and 90s that no one's ever heard of or at least i hadn't when i looked up the names of they, them. they were they were they were the the january releases of the 80s and 90s yeah exactly the one the ones just to pay the bills and then I, I looked into the 2000s and he again got back into doing like an episode of different TV shows. Like he was in ER and Arrested Development. And he uh, was in- his, his, his Arrested Development character is one of my favorite characters. Uh, is this? He, he, plays, uh, he plays himself and he's um, the one character who hires him as an acting coach. And so he's trying to give this acting advice. But all he's obsessed with is how to make stew recipes. <laughs> and he he's talking about how he's like the one guy he's eating these ribs and he's about to throw away the bones. He's like, whoa, whoa what are you doing? There's still meat on those bones. And you take that home, you put that in a pot, put a potato in there and some celery and some soup broth. You got a stew going. And that's all he like he's paying him like a whole bunch of money as an actor coach, and all he's doing is giving him stew recipes and he just the delivery is absolutely perfect. It's a very small role, but it's a memorable one for sure. That's awesome. I that's a show that I need to watch, but haven't watched is Arrested Development. The first three seasons are some of the funniest television I've ever seen in my life. The last two seasons were not as good, but the first three are absolutely hilarious. Nice. I'll have to I'll have to look for that one. He he was also in also in all of the Chicago's. Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, Chicago Justice, Chicago Med. I'll be honest, I've never watched an episode of any Chicago stuff. I neither have I, especially any of the stuff involving the the first responder stuff. It is just I can't I can't watch it. It's too <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> it's like it's like me watching uh, teacher shows. Like uh, what was the D Mister D? D. I, yeah. I watched the first episode and I'm like, yeah, I can't watch this. No kidding, hey. He was also. And then I guess. Uh, go ahead. Oh, you saying that? No, you you, you go there. I was just going to say he was in an episode of the the recent Magnum PI show, and so I was kind of disappointed when I looked back and saw that he was never in the original Magnum PI. That surprised me. I feel like he's the one that could have fit in the original Magnum PI. 
that's exactly what I was thinking. He would have been a perfect fit in the original Magnum. He has the mustache, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they did have TJ, and, you know, back then, uh, African-American people weren't given a lot of roles. Uh, you yeah, know, they had their, their they they had their token. They didn't want to, you know, there was a lot of, there was, uh, I shouldn't say, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm just talking. Speculating. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and, and Hawaii Five O. he was in an episode of Law and Order. But most importantly, he was in The Mandalorian. Which I think, I think for maybe modern audiences, that's where a lot of kind of come to know him again now. Uh, uh, he also directed, I believe, a few of the episodes of The Mandalorian in seasons uh, two and three. Oh, did he? You, you're supposed to preface that by saying, did you know that, did you know what? No. He directed. Did you know? Did you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's I, I personally i really i really have liked well did like uh his character in uh mandalorian um i'll be curious to see uh how they'll explain now for the mandalorian uh baby yoda Grogu, whatever the movie that's coming out um because i'm assuming he was probably going to have a rather large part in that movie you know being the kind of the governor of navarro and everything what they're going to do to explain his you know, I'm sure he'll die off screen, but what will they kind of be the storyline now without him? Or will they try and bring him back CGI like, you know? <laughs> I mean, that is Star Wars. They they do like to bring them back. Okay, it's possible. No, nobody's ever truly gone, right? Isn't that no their ever, no, Yeah, that's it. No one's ever truly gone. You know, so maybe they'll bring him back in a CGI manner, which I hope they don't, but... No, I could, I could see them doing that. Unfortunately, he was actually a Jedi the whole time. Force Ghost. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we just didn't know he was hiding it, as he needed to at that point. So yeah, no, I mean, definitely had a had a had his impact in Hollywood, and um, no, yeah, it was definitely a bit of a surprise to see when read that he had passed away. So. The other thing that I found interesting when I was looking up about him was that not only was he in Happy Gilmore, but he was also in Little Nicky and Eight Crazy Nights, other Adam Sandler movies. So I was wondering, he must have had maybe some connection with Adam Sandler? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe they had like the same agent or yeah, must have had some sort of, because I mean, Adam Sandler is pretty big for like when with his movies casting people that he's friends with and people he, you know, knows his personal entertainment world into his movies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, but I thought that was interesting. I mean, he was, in my opinion, the perfect Apollo. Oh, hundred percent. Like his, the cockiness that he had, that he showed in his character just, suited he it, i don't know if he was cocky in real life i didn't know the guy but if he wasn't he did a damn good job of acting that way he he always kind of remind me of like a buff billy d williams <laughs> yeah yeah i could see why you'd say that like if billy d williams you know if, if lando was like you know all ripped and jacked and just beat up uh, darth vader when he showed up in cloud city like i, I could have seen Carl Weathers portraying that that role of a buff Lando Calrissian. Yeah, because I think Billy D. Williams is a fairly cocky individual. Well, I mean, I think you got to be to play play Lando, and I mean, Lando and Apollo, they they do have some that similar kind of you know, the, I don't know what you would call it, but just that that charm and that kind of swag going on with them. The swag, yeah, you know, 
Yeah. So yeah, I know. I mean, and I and I always really like too how in in the Rocky movies, like obviously it's you know, the movies are about Rocky and his development, but how you know he goes from being the villain in the first one to the mentor by uh, the third fourth movie. I agree. I thought that was a really awesome uh, storyline the way the way they adjusted that. Yeah. No. Hundred percent. And then uh, like on top of that too, I feel like when it came to uh, like the Creed movies. Uh, with uh, his like his character son Adonis, they do a, a pretty good job. I feel like portraying like you know you, Michael B. Jordan's portrayal. You can tell he is a Creed. You know he has some of that the the you know to bring all of his legacy with him and everything. And yeah, no, it's definitely a. I would say he's going to be remembered most for. Yeah, I agree. And though, although Creed three was a pretty terrible movie. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I I agree though. Well, the thing is, not all the not all the Rocky movies are perfect too. So, well, which ones aren't perfect? Well, I mean the the the, the Rocky Bubble, Rocky Five, like the first but, four. Whoa, 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 what, what are you? What's this Rocky Five you speak of? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't. That one doesn't exist. They made four really good Rocky fun Rocky movies. And that's all they made. And then they went to and the, the Creed and, movies. And then they went to the Creed movies, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at it that way, then all the Rocky movies were fun. And Exactly. <laughs> anyway, time to move on again to... What's the next thing? Noah? Uh, Noah knows. Yeah, I, knew, I, got, knows. I, got, I, got a, I got a pretty interesting uh, fact here I was reading up about. So, uh, so did you know... Um, during the nope. editing process for Jurassic Park, um, Steven Spielberg actually made Jurassic Park and then finished Jurassic Park and moved right into making Schindler's List. So, I mean, one, I mean, those are two completely different types of movies, but two also pretty big movies that came out in the 90s that are on uh, Steven Spielberg's, you know, filmography. Um, but the thing about going from Jurassic Park to Schindler's List and the scale of them, he had to start filming in Poland uh, at a certain time. So he had to be pretty much as soon as the final shots were done for Jurassic Park, he was like, I got to get going. I got to start filming Schindler's List, got over there. Well, now they're getting into post-production, which is sometimes post-production is just as big, if not bigger than the actual like principal photography for a movie. So with that going on, he wasn't going to have time to be, you know, I mean, this is the nineties too. It's not like they could just do a zoom call to come back and forth to America to edit the movie. So he actually reached out to his longtime friend, George Lucas to take over uh, post-production for Jurassic park. Um, and if you like George Lucas doesn't get a, a, like any directing credit or like editing credit, but they give him a, like a special thank you credit at the end of the film for essentially like, you know, he, he was the one who looked over all of the editing for a majority of Jurassic Park. So without him, like it has a, a Lucas touch to it. And something I was, uh, I was kind of reading about it. That I thought was interesting. So I don't know if you remember at the end of Jurassic Park, but you know, the T-Rex comes in and, you know, that saves, if you want to say, the, the main characters, attacks of the Lost Raptors, and they get out. And the last kind of five-ish minutes or so of the movie is just them escaping the island with no dialogue and just kind of the overture music playing as they, you know, 
fly off, which that is something that George Lucas is known for, for how he likes to, you know, end his movies. If you think about, you know, Star Wars, they always kind of end with like a, a bit of a music montage with no dialogue or, you know, the Indiana Jones, the riding off into the sunset and everything. So, I mean, with that, it's kind of his, you know, mark left on the uh, Jurassic, uh, Jurassic Park movies there. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know that. I didn't know any and, of that. Uh, well, and, so, and going off that now, uh, a couple other kind of interesting things about it. So when they were um, making the Jurassic Park movie, initially when they were making Jurassic Park, they um, were going to have all the dinosaurs as stop motion. And uh, they were working on it and everything, and there was a bunch of guys, I believe it were with uh, Industrial Light and Magic, who created a 3D rendering of a Tyrannosaurus Rex walking. And they showed it to the producers who, funny enough, one of the producers at the time there was um, Kathleen Kennedy, the current president of Lucasfilms. And they showed it to these producers, this 3D rendering of the Tyrannosaurus Rex. And apparently everybody who was sitting there, there was the stop motion animator and Steven Spielberg and everything. And, uh, they realized seeing this 3D rendering that it was it was going to change filmmaking. And there's a line apparently that he said to uh, the stop motion animator said, I think I'm going to be out of a job. And one guy says, don't you mean extinct? And Steven Spielberg <laughs> overheard that and added that added that line into uh, into the film of Jurassic Park uh, after oh. hearing the animator. Oh, that's awesome. No, I, that, yeah. That- that's and then cool. for for the last part here, again, still kind of in this Spielberg verse. So Spielberg goes into making Schindler's List, make Schindler's List. You know, I, I think a lot of people would consider that one of his, you know, greatest filmmaking achievements. Um, he actually ended up, after making Schindler's List, going back and finishing his degree in film school. And for his final project in film school, he submitted his, uh, Schindler's List as his final project, which I mean, like, <laughs> As a as a film professor, how would how do you like how do you mark that a bad mark? You know, uh, A plus, I guess. I mm, yeah, wow. So, but yeah, so, yeah no, those are a couple couple little facts about Steven Spielberg and you know, the goes, creation goes of Jurassic Park. Goes to show, it's never too late to go back to school. Exactly. Yeah, you can you can have already made some of the biggest blockbusters in history and still go back and learn more. That's right. Uh, Unless you're Quentin has gone on the record saying that Quentin Tarantino, he's gone on the record saying that film school is the biggest waste of money. Oh, really? Yeah, his quote is, I didn't go to film school, I went to films. He said, you can just go and watch movies, that's good enough. Have you watched the Spielberg movie about himself growing up? Yeah, we watched that. We watched that together. The Fablemans. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I saw a quote about that movie about him, you know, becoming this amazing director and how he had all these problems in his life and he became this amazing director. And I've seen the quote that uh, even the greatest uh, director in the world will uh, will become the greatest director in the world to avoid going to uh, to therapy. I saw that. Yeah, that's so funny. Made, made funny me quote. laugh. I, I misquoted it, but it's funny. I don't know. Look it up. It's a meme about Spielberg. Uh, <laughs> you know, you were saying about how he was just like going from one thing to the next. Uh, it made me think, 
earlier in the week, I watched on Netflix The Greatest Night in Pop. Have you seen that? This I saw the thing for that. Is that when they were when they were filming the We Are the World? Yeah, yeah. And I uh, this isn't movie related, but I guess it's Netflix TV. It's kind of a movie related. Anyway, fabulous show. Uh, I learned so much from watching it. But the the interesting thing was Lionel Richie was one of the guys that was organizing the uh, We Are the World song, like to put it together to make it make it happen. And they decided they were going to do it after the American Music Awards. And so, because everybody was in town and they could just bring them over to the studio after the American Music Awards. So Lionel Richie was planning this and he was hosting the American Music Awards that night. He uh, won like six awards that night. He sang on stage that night. He was the host of the show. And then immediately following the show, he had to get everybody over to the recording studio to start recording We Are, we Are the World that night. Oh and my they were, God, that would... They were up till seven or eight in the, mor- the morning making that oh. song. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine how busy of a night that would have been. I, I remember reading a, a quote, I don't know exactly who's in, it possibly might have been Little Richie or maybe another producer, but there, you know, it was kind of a bit of a topic of conversation when the We Are The World when they were going to be recording, you know, some of the biggest music stars at the time. And they kind of made a comment to them saying, you know, no one here is, is the star of the show. We're all doing it together. And they said, if you guys are going to make it about you, then we're going to be having, because these two artists happen to also be recording that night. We're going to be getting Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles to drive you home after. Yeah. That's actually (laughs) uh, a quote in the movie. Yeah. Is it? Oh yeah. So there you go. Yeah. No, that's, I yeah. I'll have to I'll have to check it out. It's really good if you have if you're bored and you're looking for something to throw on. Uh, the Greatest Night in Pop on Netflix is really really good. Well, there you go. Okay, so uh, we've kind of talked a little bit about uh, Star Wars, you know, with the whole Carl Weathers and stuff like that. So I don't. We don't really need to. Or do you have any Star Wars news that you know of? The only Star Wars was going to be was the passing of Carl Weathers and kind of what that was going to be now. Like I said, leading with the the Mandalorian and kind of interesting to see what that will, how that will affect it for okay. for the upcoming. So, so we will, we'll skip more Star Wars news. We don't uh, for next week. Okay, yeah. so let's let's move on to our miscellaneous questions. Uh, I say questions because we may have time to do a couple here tonight. Um, First of all, what's uh, first question? What was the best year of films? So you take all of the films released in within a single year. What do you think would be the best year of films? I mean, there. I feel like it also kind of depends too on like your personal preference in movies. Like everyone's gonna, you know, have different movies they're gonna say are like the best or whatever. Um, I think we're movie we're movie critics. We we get to pick. So exactly. Uh, I mean, twenty twenty three. That's kind of what has made me think about this a lot recently. Because I thought twenty twenty three was a pretty pretty amazing year for uh, film releases. You know, Barbie, Oppenheimer, uh, you know, Holdovers. Like some pretty amazing uh, movies. Um, the one year I kind of wanted to uh, highlight what I think is one of the the best years in film. Um, 
I guess my pick would be was uh, 1994. Uh, so in 1994, some of the big ones that we saw come out that year, uh, The Lion King, uh, which to this day is still the highest grossing hand-drawn animation movie of all time. Um, yeah, for, uh, Forrest Gump, which I mean, I think is a, a bit of a beloved classic among people. Uh, Pulp Fiction, like we were talking about previously. Uh, we had Shawshank Redemption. Uh, True Lies and Speed, two kind of very 90s action movies that are a very, you know, they have a very large following. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, like I would probably put it in my top five films of all time, uh, is the movie Clerks uh, by Kevin Smith. Uh, one of those kind of small, low-budget, independent movies that kind of jump-started Kevin Smith's career. Like it was kind of a he went all in with like maxing out his credit cards and everything to make this movie. He would work shifts at his, the convenience store and then got permission to film in it at night and was sleeping two hours, like a night for a month, just so he could work and film at the same time. Uh, and again, it's one of those kind of like Pulp Fiction, like just a like very well-written, very smart characters, smart dialogue. Um, 94, we also kind of was the year of Jim Perry. So all in 94, Jim Perry had Dumb and Dumber, The Mask, and Ace Ventura all come out in the same year. Arguably his best work. 100%. You know, like that's, I feel like, when people look back on, on Jim Perry, those are what he is remembered for. Maybe the only uh, other, like, one from the 90s, I think, that wouldn't have been that year was Liar Liar, which I think was just shortly after, maybe 95. So, yeah, that was definitely kind of the the year of Jim Carrey as well. But um, yeah, no, that would be, I think my pick for one of the best years in uh, film history. Yeah. Shawshank Redemption to this day is one of my all time favorites. It's in my top five movies, non star Wars movies, uh, top Pulp Fiction and Shawshank actually are right up there. True lies. Yeah. Any, anytime I usually don't search it out, but it often will come on TV and I never turn it off. If it's on TV, I always watch it. No, 100%. Hey. Now, on the other hand, Speed was one of the worst movies I've seen. I hated that movie. See, but I feel you you are looking at it from the, the physics point of view and everything, too. Yeah, well, how else are you going to look at it? It's supposed to be a real movie. Like, <laughs> Slocky action fun. The bus does not jump like that. The, but I think without without Speed, I don't think we would have had... Uh, Keanu Reeves. Um, I can think that was kind of his movie that kind of got him really, really big after that came out. Really? Do you think so? Do you think that was the one I, that made the difference? I well, mean, I mean, he already he already was kind of a like I mean, he was in Bill and Ted, but I think that was, was kind of his, Bill and Ted was before that, wasn't it? It was. I I could have sworn though that I, he, I would, like prior to that he hadn't done anything super super big. Yeah. I guess, but I, I would argue The Matrix was the thing that created Keanu Reeves. I, yeah, 100%. Like, maybe maybe Speed kept him in the, in the, the eye no. of, uh, yeah, but uh, but without The Matrix, we, we wouldn't, Keanu Reeves wouldn't be where he is. No, 100%. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you were the one that actually asked this question, and so I, I started looking back at some of the years and there's some amazing years of film out there but i really had to go back to 1977 um 
that was like I was what uh, eight years old, and for me, the movies that came out that year that just absolutely changed my life. Uh, there was, of course, Star Wars, this little film that uh, New Hope changed cinema forever. Uh, but but on top of that, we had Smokey and the Bandit. That was I I remember watching that and just absolutely like loving uh Burt Reynolds thinking that was the greatest car film ever made that was the the year of the spy who loved me which uh Roger Moore uh my favorite James Bond until Daniel Craig came along um also had the first uh showing of the my favorite henchman in a James Bond movie which was Jaws it's a big guy with big silver teeth I love Jaws he was he was awesome um as well, that year, The Gauntlet came out with with um, Clint Eastwood, and uh, I loved The Gauntlet. There was Slapshot, which arguably I didn't see at that time. I didn't see Slapshot until much later in life when I was a teenager and and got it on VHS, but uh, but that came out that year. There was also Oh God by with George Burns. I remember watching that one and loving that one. Uh, Saturday Night Fever came out that year. Ca- Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I didn't really care for. I'm I'm not a Dreyfus fan, but uh, I know that's a big, big movie. And then, of course, Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo with Don Knotts came out that year, and I always loved. I mean, all you can never, never go never go wrong with Don Knotts. Don Knotts oh. is one of, grew, one of the funniest actors. <laughs> you grew up watching Don Knotts with your grandpa, though. Oh, I, I, he's, I mean, in my opinion, still Mr. Furley's the better landlord out of him and Mr. Roper. <laughs> Do you like, you, you preferred Mr. Furley to the Ropers? Uh, yeah, I had, I did not to say I didn't like the Ropers, uh, but Mr. Furley is just something, something else. So, so then which was your favorite, uh, roommate of the, of the girls that came through? Like I, honestly, I, 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 I think it still would have to be Janet. Janet and Jax, like just the the way they rip on each other and everything is just absolutely perfect. And I mean, I think also just the consistency too of her character because she was the one who never the roommate that never left the show. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I I've read and watched a little bit about Suzanne Summers, and it sounds like she maybe got a little bit full of herself, but also she kind of got screwed over a little bit too. Don and Don Knotts was apparently a very like he was the only person to cast that would that supported her through all of that. Like oh, really? when they were off when they were offset, like um, John Ritter and Joyce Dewitt, like they would talk to her and. Don Knotts would make it known to people that I'm going to go eat lunch with Suzanne. And he was very, very supportive of kind of what she was going through because apparently he had dealt with very similar stuff in previous shows he had worked on in like the fifties and sixties. Oh, really? So apparently he was uh, quite supportive. So again, that's another reason to show how, how How good of a guy he was. (laughs) How could anybody treat Don Knotts poorly? Like, Oh, I, I'm sorry, but yeah, there, are, there's, there's, there's some, there's some evil people out there in you, Hollywood. You are, you, you deserve a special place in hell if you treated Don Knotts poorly during your life. Oh, exactly, hundred percent. Because he's a gem, or he was a gem. He's no longer a gem. I guess he's still a gem. He's still a gem. In our hearts, he'll always be a gem. 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I think we got a little time here. So let's let's talk a second uh, miscellaneous question, if you will. This is one that uh, I was really interested in. Who is the best female villain that you've ever seen in a movie? You want me to go so, first? Do you want? To yeah, I mean, doesn't matter. You can, you can go first. I went first for the the movie ones, so you can start us off here. Okay, so. When I was looking at this question, I, I actually searched up female villains. and um, But before I did, there was a name that popped into my head. There was a movie that popped into my head when I thought of, you know, who was the, the best female villain I've ever seen in film. But I thought, oh, that, I can't just go with my first instinct. I need to search it out and maybe find, maybe I'll see something that reminds me, oh, there's somebody better than, than that one. So, you know, there were some really interesting names came up. Uh, Kate Blanchett's name came up several times in movies like Tar, Miss America, Mrs. America, sorry, and Hella in Thor Ragnarok. She was great as Hella. I actually just recently watched Tar for the first time, probably so, and I was absolutely blown away by her performance in that. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, but I might. It's have to it, it is it is such a unsettling character, and it is just so well done. Like after seeing it, I was kind of like, "Oh my god, how did she not get more recognition for that?" Because it was a fantastic role of hers. I would oh. highly, highly recommend the movie. I'll have to give it another chance here. Um, I I came. I read about you know some of the Disney female villains. Disney has had some amazing villains. Uh, Maleficent, right? Cruella DeVille, like a, a woman who's going to kill puppies and make a coat out of them. You can't get much more evil you, than you that. You really can't. You can't you get know? much more evil than that. There's Ursula from uh, The Little Mermaid. Yzma is one of my favorite villains. I loved Yzma. Well, um, I've never seen groomed all around. It's just such an amazing Like, there, there's been so many good female villains over the years, like all the way back to Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth and her manipulative tactics that her, her ambition that trying to drive Macbeth into madness. Like you can go a long way back and find some amazing female villains. Um, one name that came up that made me laugh when I was searching out like top female villains, there was Vicky from the fairly odd parents. Oh yeah, that, that would that would probably put that in. I'd put her more in like the uh, situation of like for villains, how how Biff is a villain in Back to the Future, you know, like you you kind of laugh at them, but they also still have that you know kind of that darker intent behind them. Yeah, you guys watched a lot of Fairly Odd Parents, and consequently, I also watched a lot of Fairly <laughs> Odd Parents when you were growing up. Uh, exactly. Another. Another honorable honorable mention I would have to give to the Borg Queen from Star Trek. And in this same vein, kind of the Alien Queen from uh, Alien, right? They're both uh they're both out there protecting their children, protect you know, uh but but theme kind of evil at the same time. Like the, I don't consider the alien the queen from Alien to be truly evil. She was just protecting her children, but she was still a badass villain, right? You know, if you think about it, um, Disney actually owns, like, the distribution rights to the Alien franchise. So by that logic, would the Alien Queen not be part of, like, the other Disney princesses and Disney royalty? (laughs) 
I I wouldn't I well I wouldn't know if I'd put her. Would that make would that make all the xenomorphs Disney princesses then? Not not like uh, uh, Klinger from Mash. He's a Disney princess now. He he yes, he's the best Disney princess. Because they own MASH. Um, but it, after looking through all these amazing female villains, the one that really jumped out at me or, or stuck with me was the the name in the movie that hit me when I first thought of this. It it terrified me when I first watched this movie. Um, and, and it wasn't a horror movie, but I was honestly shook up after I watched this movie. And it was from 1987. The movie was called Fatal Attraction starring Glenn Close as the character Alex Forrest. And uh, so in it, um, Michael Douglas has a, a fling with, with Glenn Close in the movie, and then she ruins his life. Like, he's married and has kids, and he has this little fling that he thinks is going to be over, and she stalks him and ruins the man's life. And it just, he is so good in that movie. Like, I just... It. I literally had nightmares about that movie after watching it. Well, and I, th- I think uh, the thing probably about that too is it's it's not a like you know a monster or something like that. It's something that you know a a person that could actually exist in the real yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. It was so real, and that and that's what that's what really. I've I've been terrified of ever uh, even thinking of uh, you know cheating in my, in my marriage because of that movie. So that's good, right? Not, not a great there, movie. But, yeah. No, I um, God, that scared the hell out of me. So kind of in the same vein as that, then um, you know, having the the villain be something that's so scary and so real. Uh, the one that I, that I kind of thought of for best female villain. Um, was uh, Kathy Bates as uh, Annie Wilkes from the movie Misery. You know, it, it, it's a movie that is, that nothing about it is supernatural. It's, you know, she's a, a crazy fan. And, uh, you know, James Conn gets in the accident that, you know, she quote unquote saves him from. Uh, and, you know, her, just her patrol or portrayal and just kind of her descent into madness and obsession is such an unsettling uh role and i'll be honest the the hobbling scene when he when she breaks uh his feet i i still have to like kind of look away i I either can listen to the sound or watch it without the sound i can't do both because it's just it's too gross of a of a scene um and she ended up i mean winning the oscar that year for her uh portrayal as uh, that character so i think that it just goes to show how well she was able to have that come across on camera yeah so i guess you could say that both of us are terrified by obsessed women i yeah i would i guess that's the case that's a bit of a trend there hey (laughs) maybe it's because we're father and son i don't know yeah no kidding hey (laughs) you know but i think that also is it with any with any villain when they have some basis in in reality you know you look at something like even Hannibal Lecter or something like that like these are all the, the idea to think of a, a person like that like there are people like that in the world that would do that and worse you know and it as much as we watch these movies and it's a it's a not a real thing it's a fantasy there's always you know there's some truth behind it for you know where they got the inspiration for that character yeah, that's and that goes back to what we talked about earlier. How character is what movie watching is all about for us. Like story is great, but character is is the most important thing. 
Well, and I mean, with Kathy Bates, too, you can't really go wrong with her. She's such an amazing oh, isn't actress. She, like, she's one of my like, favorite female actors of all time. Like, I, I oh, I would, I would 100% there. agree. If, if, I see, if I see Kathy Bates is in the movie, I'm going to give the movie a chance no matter what. It's kind of she's kind of like a female Sam Rockwell, even if the movie itself isn't, uh, you know, exactly. maybe the the best movie. You, you know, you can get some enjoyment out of uh, out of her role at the very least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think that uh, pretty much uh, covers everything we wanted to talk about this week. Yeah, I think so. Just one want to throw one more mention that if you. Uh, if you're looking for something to do this weekend, come out to the Falcon Theater on Saturday night. Support Tell a Miracle and support the Falcon Theater. Tickets can be got at um, for the Saturday show. They're $20 and you can get tickets at the Northeast Appliance Plus on Main Street in Tisdale or by getting a hold of Chris or I at the theater or, or on Facebook. If you give us a shout, we can get you tickets for this weekend. So uh, come on out and support Tell a Miracle. Anyway, awesome. Until next time, we'll talk. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> See you at the movies. <laughs>